The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. I am sorry to report that the regularly regularly scheduled bi-weekly conversation involving John McWhorter and myself, which was due to air today, will not, in fact, be able to air. John's a little bit under the weather. We've had to postpone that conversation by one week. We'll be back a week from today with the uh, bi-weekly conversation, and we'll continue on every other week from there. Uh, we were going to talk with Tyler Austin Harper of Bates College and Daniel Besner of the University of Washington about free speech issues in the midst of the conflict in the Middle East. And that crew, all four of us, will be back next week for that conversation. This week, Instead of Glenn and John, I'm going to interview Yasha Monk of Johns Hopkins University about his new book. So thanks for tuning in this week. See you next week and every week here at The Glenn Show. Hello, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to The Glenn Show. I'm a professor at Brown University and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show, I'm proud to say. And I'm with Yasha Monk was a political scientist. He teaches at Johns Hopkins University. And uh, he's the author of uh, a number of noteworthy books, most recently, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. So we're here to talk about Yasha's new book. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Glenn. How is it that you came to take up this uh, subject at this time? Well, I mean, you know, like you, I'm a professor um, and a fellow at a think tank um, and somebody who writes in the media. And I've just been struck over the course of the last decade that my friends and acquaintances have radically changed what they believe. Um, that what it is to be left wing in America in 2023 is very different from what it was to be left wing in 2005 or 2010. Um, and, uh, you know, there has been a spread of these new ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation. Uh, you might call them woke. Sometimes they're referred to as identity politics, which I think is too broad. I prefer the term identity synthesis. And there doesn't seem to be any serious work on them. I don't think a lot of people have actually tried to trace in a rigorous way the intellectual history of where these ideas come from, um, how they became so influential. Um, and then to critique the applications today. Your good friend John McWhorter is one of the exceptions. There's one or two other attempts. Uh, but I thought this is a really important phenomenon um, that, that needed to be explained. And so that's what I set out to do in the book. You think it's a problem of the left? Uh, yes. I mean, I think, you know, some, some people ask me the question of whether there's a form of uh, right-wing identity politics. And I think that's certainly true. It's certainly fair to say that a lot of 
um, American history can be described as a form of white identity politics. It's a too soft term for the extreme racial exclusion and so on that we've had in history. But I think that that is both uh, a, a very different and in some ways an intellectually less interesting story. I mean, you know, we know we have dealt with ethno-nationalism and racism for a very long time. And so there's a very well-established uh, field of research about it, and that's important. Um, I think the ideology that has become so influential on the left is distinct. It has different roots. It tries to claim that it is going to make the world a better place for everybody in a different kind of way than those more parochial arguments on, on, on the right that, that explicitly say what we are doing is for this kind of ethnic or cultural group. Um, uh, and so I think it deserves to be studied in its own right. Okay. What do you mean by the identity synthesis then? So, um, uh, again, this is my term for this ideology. I think the main thing we need to do is just to have a damn term to use, right? Because there's this weird game where the ideology hides being an ideology by uh, making, uh, by rendering, quote, unquote, problematic any term that might be applied to it. So the word woke is a term that originally was coined and owned by progressive activists that came from within the African-American community. Now, when you go on about woke, whatever, you can sort of sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the, at the clouds. Um, and that's not true for other ideologies, right? Socialism, controversial ideology. Some people like it. Lots of people don't like it, but all of them can agree to call it socialism. And so I just wanted a term that allows us to talk about these ideas dispassionately, that people who agree with these ideas and people like me who are critical of these ideas uh, can use in common. Um, why the identity synthesis? Uh, well, because it is a set of ideas that claim that the key way to understand the world, and in some ways the key way that we should organize the world, revolves around identity categories like race and gender and sexual orientation. And secondly, I think these ideas are a synthesis of different intellectual influences, including postmodernism and postcolonialism, and critical race theory. But if you want to call it something else, I don't care. I think Freddie DeBoer says, I'm happy to call it the thing. Just tell me what to call it. Um, I think for productive conversation, it's helpful to have a neutral term. Okay. Postmodernism. So Foucault, uh, post-colonialism. So Said And post-civil rights movement. So Derek Bell and company. You want to walk us through the the progression there of uh, ideas that have resulted in the synthesis that you're decrying? Yeah, I'm very happy to. So, you know, the the little work that's been done on where these ideas come from, usually by people who are not trained in intellectual history, tends to claim that it's a form of cultural Marxism. Um, and uh, I'm happy to get into why I think that 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 that, that is wrong. Um, uh, but one of the core ideas is that Marxism is, you know, essentially about economic categories like social class. And to say, as people who have this frame do, that you can sort of take class out of Marxism and put in these cultural categories is a little bit like saying that you've taken the bat out of baseball. That's just not enough of the ideology left. And as an actual intellectual matter, when you look at who's being cited in the academy today, uh, what the intellectual lineage of these ideas are, it is not Marx and the Frankfurt School and so on. It is figures like Foucault and Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak and Bell and, and Crenshaw. So uh, 
uh, it starts with Foucault, who rejects grand narratives, these grand attempts to structure our understanding of a world and of history, including both philosophical liberalism and Marxism, and who is very skeptical of the idea that his society has made any progress, for example, in how it treats the mentally ill or criminals uh, or sexual minorities, um, and who adopts a very different idea of power than people had before, saying that power is not, as you and I might think of it naively, top-down with laws and a bureaucratic state and a police force that enforce them, uh, but rather it really inheres in our discourses. You know, we are exercising power by having this conversation and having an audience and the way we frame things is an exercise of power. Uh, so all of this was a very effective solvent. It allowed people to criticize uh, uh, democratic institutions and some of the real shortcomings of post-war France in a very powerful way. But it wasn't very activist. Um, it, it, it suggested that any set of discourses might be as oppressive as the next. And so there's really, as Foucault said, no great place of refusal. So in the next step, you then have a set of post-colonial thinkers who are really attracted to the solvent. They're saying, we are trying to figure out how to recreate our countries newly independent without just adopting these Western ideas, whether they be liberalism or whether they be Marxism. But we need to not just critique, we need to do stuff. And so they set out to put the politics back into postmodern thought. The first step here is Edward Said. What Said does is to say, look, I'm going to take Michel Foucault's notion of a discourse, as he says in the introduction to Orientalism. That's going to be my main tool. But I don't just want to expose those discourses. I want to use them as a form of political power. I'm not just going to show how the West's uh, uh, representation of the East, of a quote-unquote Orient, has allowed those countries to justify colonial rule. I want to invert the discourse in such a way that we can fight back. So here you get the origin of discourse critique as a tool of politics, of a politicized form of discourse critique. And I think you see this really readily in our politics today. What is it to do feminist politics today? It might in part be arguing for abortion rights or something like that, but it's in part celebrating or critiquing or finding problematic the Barbie movie, right? That is part of how we do politics today. And that comes from Said. The, the other step here is Gayatri Spivak, an Indian literary theorist who buys the critique of stable identity categories uh, that people like Foucault developed. Foucault, in our terms, is a homosexual, a gay man who had sex with men. But he didn't like the term because he thought it was too essentializing, it was too simplifying, uh, the variety of sexual experience was too big, and there's lots of gay men he didn't have much in common with, there's non-gay men he did have stuff in common with, it's just not a helpful label, right? And, and Spivak says, yes, that's right, but the critique of essentialist understandings of identity is absolutely right. But I need to be able to speak for the most oppressed people in places like Calcutta. You know, they can't speak for themselves. Somebody has to champion them. And to do that, we need identity categories. And so she ends up coining the slightly paradoxical term of strategic essentialism, saying that, yes, philosophically speaking, these essentialist notions of identity are wrong. But for strategic purposes, we have to act as though they were right. And that helps to explain a lot of the kind of pedagogical practices that you end up getting today. If you go to an activist space today, they'll say race is a social construct. Broadly speaking, I agree with. But then they go on to speak about black and brown people or about people of color as though they were a natural category, as though they did have something fundamental 
in common. Uh, it explains why a lot of educators, like the very influential organization Embrace Race, have now concluded that uh, you need to teach students and children to think of themselves as primarily racial beings in order to then be able to go and fight against white supremacy and white privilege and all of those kinds of things. That's all downstream from how people interpret Spivak. Strategic essentialism. <laughs> I pause here because um, recently um, I participated in a debate amongst African-American intellectuals where on one side were the race abolitionists. Uh, this was Camille Foster and Shelby Steele who were saying, let's get out of the business of routinely referring to ourselves in terms of these discredited categories of race. And on the other side were myself and Robert Woodson, uh, who runs a, a research and policy activist center in Washington, D.C., arguing well, yes, at the highest level of uh, intellectual abstraction, these are categories that we could well do without. But as a practical matter, in terms of mobilization, we want to do something about the Black family. We, we want to fight against violence in the community. We want to hold up ideals of intellectual achievement and excellence as being consistent with our identity. We feel a loyalty and attachment we have a historical narrative about our people. These things are all artifacts of history and culture, which we eschew at our, at our, uh, to our disadvantage. We, we, this is the language we speak. This is the way we move one another, et cetera. What's wrong with that? Yeah, so I'm not a race abolitionist for the reasons that, that, that you point out. Um, you know, there's this fact, but this... Uh, artificial category of race um, has structured American society in particular for a very long time. Um, and so that creates a puzzle. How do you deal with that? On the one side of this are people like Karen and Barbara Fields in their beautiful book, Racecraft, which I don't ultimately agree with, but which I think is deeply insightful, um, who say, look, this category is just so damaging in how it structures society, that if we uncritically use this term of race, we're actually going to recreate all of these forms of racism that inhere in it. And so therefore, true liberation would be to dismantle the category. Um, and then there's other people who at, at, at the extremes say, look, um, because this is what has structured American society in key ways, we need to encourage people to see themselves insofar as possible within that category, right? That, 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 that the most important thing to teach a six or seven-year-old is to think of themselves as racial beings. That is what organizations like Embrace Race say. I think there's a huge field in the middle where you can say, uh, look, I'm a Jew. Uh, I'm not religious. Um, my family hasn't been religious for a number of generations. But the experience of... Uh, uh, genocide and, 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 and murder and discrimination that my family has gone through gives me yeah. some amount of genuine Jewish experience, right? Um, and yeah. I don't think it makes sense to give it up. In a similar way, someone like Tommy Shelby has a great philosophically liberal account for forms of black solidarity that are based in the historical experience of slavery and Jim Crow and discrimination. That this doesn't. Is, excuse me, Yasha, this is Tommy Shelby, the philosopher at Harvard. Many books, among which are "We Who Are Dark," uh, that that 
makes arguments along the lines you're discussing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think that there's a huge middle field here. And the question is, where within that middle field should we fall? Now, what I worry about is that, um, you know, gravitating towards the importance of these subnational groups like race and gender and sexual orientation comes relatively naturally to us, right? America is still a very segregated place. Um, people still have a lot of friends from within the same uh, ethnic groups. Um, uh, this is not about to disappear. Um, the question is, how should institutions like our universities, like our schools deal with that? Uh, and I think what they should do is to be sure that they create enough areas for encounter, enough occasions for people to meet each other, that we also build those connections beyond those groups. And especially when it comes to politics, the question is, do we want to adopt policies in which what a group gets is explicitly dependent on the ethnic group in which we're part, which I think is often going to lead to zero-sum competition between different ethnic blocs. Zero-sum competition, but historically in America, whites have won, and there's no particular reason to think that they wouldn't win it again. Or do we create more universalist policies in which we de-emphasize those forms of uh, ethnic uh, 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 importance in the context of public policy, in the context of who gets what, in order to actually be able to sustain uh, a more solidaristic politics. Um, you know, the most uh, 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 convincing part of social psychology research for the last 75 years has been the research on intergroup contact. And what it shows is that people from groups that have historically had deep prejudices against each other can come to have a more positive view through interaction. But that interaction has to have particular conditions attached to it. In the situation in which that interaction takes place, you need to be equals. Not perhaps in society as a whole, that may not be achievable uh, uh, in that context, but, 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 but in the situation where you're interacting, you should be equals. Secondly, you have to have a common goal. You have to be fighting for the same thing in that situation. And thirdly, the authorities should be telling you that you're expected to get along. A university campus where on your first day you're put into different affinity groups and yeah. there's an anonymous hotline to report microaggressions violates this in every possible respect. A university which mixes and matches people who share rooms in the first year in random ways or with an eye to ma making people who are different from each other have that experience together or a sports team in, 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 in elementary school or middle school or in high school where you're on the team together and you're fighting to win the match fulfills those kinds of conditions. That doesn't mean you pretend race doesn't exist. In fact, it creates the condition in which one player on the baseball team can then say to the other player, hey, I've had this experience with police violence. I face these kind of struggles and create understanding and empathy for those kind of uh, downstream effects from, from historical racism in the United States. It occurs to me that it's also dynamic. It, 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 it creates possibilities for new forms of identity and, and cross-cutting connections. Um, okay, I, I don't know a whole lot about postmodernism. I'll, I'll confess that. Uh, I, I was taken with your recounting of this famous debate between Noam Chomsky and uh, Michel Foucault at the height of the Vietnam conflict. Um, which I went and looked up on YouTube and, and the thing that struck me about it most was that each debated in his own language and neither one required a translation of the other in order to understand what was being said, which impressed me greatly. Um, but 
what's the connection between the the postmodern and the postcolonial uh, uh, intellectual uh, tributaries? How are they uh, linked to each other? So very explicitly, um, you know, Said is uh, a very interesting writer and in many ways an insightful writer. He was not a modest man and he barely mentions anybody positively in Orientalism, except for Michel Foucault, right in the introduction and a number of other times in the book as well. He says, my study is based on Foucault's notion of a discourse. So there's a very explicit link uh, to, to how he uses that in thinking about politics. Um, the same is true of Spivak who comes to prominence as the translator of, uh, of, of Jacques Derrida, who writes a, you know, over 100-page introduction to on grammatology. Um, so again, she is very explicitly in that tradition. Interestingly, the next step also has roots in postmodernism. And the next step is critical race theory. Um, and institutionally, critical race theory started out in a corner of the law school, of the American law schools, called uh, critical legal studies. What critical legal studies was, uh, was applying these postmodernist notions that are very skeptical of, um, uh, very skeptical of uh, 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 the law and of the way in which judges rule um, uh, 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 to the law. Right, so sorry, I, I, I scrambled this. But what, what what critical legal studies was was to apply sort of postmodernist ideas that are, that are skeptical of truth and skeptical of uh, universal values and skeptical of the ability of people to be neutral to the law. Saying you know, it used to be that people in law schools believed that a judge just thinks through a case through competing doctrines and is a kind of neutral arbiter. Actually, judges have political biases and material self interests, and that's really what drives how they rule. Um, and then uh, people like Derek Bell come in and say, look, that's fine. That's the tradition we're moving in. But what we're also missing out is the importance of race. And so critical legal studies becomes critical race theory. Um, you know, Derek Bell was a, a very interesting uh, man, um, a civil rights lawyer, did heroic work for the NAACP, helping to desegregate hundreds of schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South and beyond. But comes to think of that work, and this is going back to how you're saying sort of the post-civil rights movement, he comes to think of much of that work as a mistake. Um, you know, he comes to uh, say that the segregationist critique of civil rights law was in some key ways right. What segregation senators used to say is that, um, you know, these civil rights lawyers, they're not really interested in the, in, in the well-being of their clients. They're just trying to impose their liberal uh, ideology of integration on us. And the first famous article that Bell writes is called Serving Two Masters. And it is saying that that's exactly what civil rights lawyers like him did in the 60s. That they weren't truly interested in the well-being of their black clients. But what they were truly interested in was imposing this ideology, even when it didn't help those black clients. Now, part of that critique was understandable, right? Part of his worry was he often had clients who wanted to go to better high schools and to integrated high schools. But by the time he won those cases, they had graduated high schools, so they never got to benefit from that, right? Um, but, the, but the response, the inference he took from that was really quite radical. He said that a Brown versus Board of Education was in some key ways a mistake, that we have to reject what he calls the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. He mocked things like we shall overcome the, the, the song of the civil rights movement as sort of basically pious bullshit, right? Um, and so I think that at the heart of what we're talking about here 
is a debate between the African-American political tradition that goes from people like Frederick Douglass uh, to Martin Luther King Jr. and the explicit rejection of that tradition in people like Derek Bell. You know, it's something I've never understood about this um, um, intellectual uh, anthropology in terms of accounting for our contemporary scene in which critical race theory has such a prominent role because I was actually around when uh, these guys were writing these, uh, men and women were writing these books and papers. I remember the critical legal studies movement. I was at Harvard in the 1980s and uh, associated it with, uh, you know, deeply serious and learned and, and rigorous uh, scholarship. And, and I remember the critical race uh, studies uh, work at that time. And I must say, I never accorded it the same degree of, of uh, deference and, and respect. I, I thought the practitioners, and I included the Professor Bell in this, were somehow less compelling and, and, and less intellectually profound. And forgive me, I don't mean any offense to anybody, but this was my impression. But here we are now, 35 years later, and who can name anybody or anything that the critical legal studies people wrote and critical race theory is all the rage. Uh, it, something anti-meritocratic in the intellectual sphere. Uh, I mean, do you do you share that view? And, and or tell me where I'm wrong. Well, uh, let me say two things. One is uh, this is a very recent and surprising development, right? And so it can feel like the um, intellectual genealogy I just traced is sort of a little bit boutique while we're talking about this. Well, the reason we're talking about it is that it helps to explain a lot of contemporary progressive politics, which, by the way, the account of cultural Marxism cannot, right? You take from Foucault the rejection of uh, uh, neutral forms of truth. Um, you take from Said this politicized form of discourse analysis. You take from Spivak the embrace of strategic essentialism. You take from Bell the deep skepticism about the ability to make any kind of progress on matters like race and the rejection of uh, the civil rights movement, the rejection of um, these forms of remedies, the embrace of what today would be called equity and race-sensitive public policies. And then something we haven't quite gotten to, you take from uh, Crenshaw's popularized version of what she means by intersectionality, which sort of takes on a life of its own. And that is a lot of contemporary social justice movement politics. So it actually explains a lot of this stuff to you. Now, I would draw the distinction uh, a little bit more generously to some of these figures. Um, I, I enjoyed reading the writings of all of the people we've talked about so far. And uh, uh, with the exception possibly of Spivak, it's very approachable, actually. I mean, you can, you know, it's clear and approachable. And some of it has straightforwardly good insights. Um, you know, the original formulation of intersectionality is just the recognition that the discrimination you might face as a black woman is not just the arithmetic sum of a discrimination faced by black people or by women. In some contexts, it's going to go above and beyond that. It's what social scientists would have called an interaction effect. And I think that's a straightforwardly sensible point to make. Um, I I'm really struck by how those ideas then become popularized and often vulgarized through Tumblr and Ford Catalog and then the mainstream press. And eventually you have in 2020, people like Robin DiAngelo and Iram X. Kendi uh, dominating the, the bestseller list. So, you know, 
it may be that the original critical legal studies people are, you know, a smidgen more sophisticated than the critical race theory people. For me, the real distinction is between all of those people we've talked about so far and then the vulgarized, popularized version of how those ideas take on a life of their own in the academy. And some of the people we've talked about themselves become skeptical of that. So Said says, you know, the point is not to revel in victimhood, it's to help overcome victimhood. Um, Spivak says, you know, my concept of strategic essentialism is one I don't want to use anymore because in a lot of contexts, it's just become what she calls the union ticket for essentialism. And in, in reference to the tea wallers in India who sell chai in the, in the streets of Indian cities, uh, she complains about what she calls the identity wallers at American universities. Okay. Um, on Derek Bell, uh, the civil rights movement, the Brown decision, the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964, all of that, fair housing. This is not a solution to the problem. It looked like a solution to the problem to me. It looked like a solution to the problem that a government can address, which is to establish equal standing before the law. It was never within the feasibility of the government to eliminate all the consequences of uh, racialized history. Um, why isn't Derek Bell obviously wrong uh, to uh, argue against the uh, advocacy of uh, William Hastie and company, uh, uh, given the historic nature of the transformation in American civil life that uh, the efforts of these anti uh, discrimination activists like Hasty and Thurgood Marshall and so forth had wrought. Uh, how, how is it that, uh, that, that this point of view of Bell's could have such uh, currency when it seems to be in such obvious conflict with the, the more arc of history, which is bending toward justice? Um, well, look, I, I, I agree with, with, with your position in this debate. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it perhaps it depends on what standard you're holding these texts against. If you're holding those, those texts against uh, the standard of Robin DiAngelo and Ibram X. Kendi, then they are, you know, giants towering above dwarfs. Perhaps that's an unfairly lenient standard. But, but, but to the substance of it, you know, uh, we've talked about the sort of intellectual history of this and where these ideas come from. Another way of thinking about it is more philosophically. And so, in the first part of the book, I trace intellectual history. In the second part of the book, I explain how these ideas became popular, which, as you're saying, is a paradoxical thing. In, in 2010, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw writes an article on the 20th anniversary of critical race theory saying, well, we've got some nice influence in universities, but we're completely marginal to society as a whole. You know, Barack Obama's key philosophy is fundamentally at odds of critical race theory and we're completely marginal. And yet by 2020, that ideology is in some ways ensconced as the dominating feature of American mainstream institutions. How did that happen? In the third part of the book, I really go through the application of these ideas to different areas of public life, explaining why we can understand each other across identity groups, even if we stand at different intersections of identities, why we should not put, quote unquote, cultural appropriation under a general pole of suspicion, why we need to defend a general culture of free speech, why we should resist these forms of progressive separatism in education, where well, we should be critical of many very sensitive public policies. But in the fourth part, I then go on to say, all right, let's take a step back 
and do what philosophers call a rational reconstruction of these ideas, really boil them down to their essential claims and see how philosophical liberals should respond to them. Um, and, and I think there's three main claims here which go to the heart of your objection right now. The first claim that uh, advocates of the identity synthesis make, broadly speaking, is to say uh, the key prism for thinking about uh, society, for understanding social situations, for understanding politics, is race, gender, and sexual orientation. Now, D'Angelo says that every time a white person interrupts a black person, bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. That might be true in some kind of context. It was certainly true in many contexts in American history. But today, this may be two great friends having a debate. It may be people who are spouses, people who interrupt each other in an affirming way, or people who interrupt each other because they're equals in a social situation, right? The second claim is that um, the kind of universal principles uh, that the Declaration of Independence was based on, uh, principles like free speech, principles even like the 14th Amendment, are fundamentally attempts to pull the wool over our eyes, right? According to Bell, Brown versus Board of Education only was passed because it happened to be interests of whites. And anything else about it is just an attempt to distract you from its real purpose, which is to perpetuate racial and sexual and other forms of discrimination, right? And so therefore, number three, let's rip up those universal values and neutral standards and make how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us more explicitly, explicitly depend on the identity group of which we're a part. Now, I think that there is a very compelling liberal response to all of that. Once it doesn't have to throw the baby out of the bathwater. One that certainly doesn't deny the persistence of serious forms of racism today and the persistence of the after effects of even more extreme forms of racism in the past. And that is to say, number one, that of course, race and gender and sexual orientation matter. Of course, those are things that help to structure society, and we have to eye them critically and be aware of them. But they are not the only prism for understanding society. Class also matters. Religion also matters. People's individual actions and aspirations and values and aesthetic preferences matter. All kinds of different things matter. And rather than coming to a situation with your mind already made up, uh, being monomaniacal in how you think about the world, as our friend John Hyde would put it, you need to let the situation teach you what the right frame of references. And sometimes that'll be race. Sometimes that'll be sexual orientation. Sometimes it'll be completely different kinds of things. Secondly, as you're saying, Bell is wrong to say that America is no more just today than it was in the past. He says there's a permanence of racism in America and the shape of that racism might shapeshift, it might change, um, but the essential fact of it remains uh, as intense as it ever was. I think that's offensive. And it's not offensive to the great Americans living today. It's offensive to the Americans 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, who suffered much, much, much worse forms of exclusion and discrimination uh, uh, and, and violence. Um, in fact, the true story is very different. It is that in a, in, in a very difficult and painful uh, process of two steps back and one, uh, two steps forward and one and a half steps back, it is people like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King who have allowed us to make progress. And the key weapon that they had was the insistence on those universal values. It was the recognition by Frederick Douglass that free speech allowed people to say terrible things in his day, but it was the dread of tyrants because it also allowed people, when it was very unpopular, 
to fight for, for abolition. And so therefore, if we want to make further progress, we have to recognize that we've made some progress and we have to fight to bring American reality more closely in alignment with American ideals, not by ripping up these values, but by living up to them. What happened in the summer of 2020? Why did the murder of George Floyd set off a conflagration across the country? Uh, wh what was the genesis of this moment of racial reckoning? Uh, and how does the rise of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and related political outcroppings relate to the story that you're telling? Uh, was it dry tender waiting to be set aflame? Was it something abound to happen? It only needed a catalyst. Um, what, what, what do you think is going on there? Because it, it seems to me like we're, we're not exactly past this moment. Uh, uh, I, I like to tell audiences that, you know, there are uh, tens of thousands of arrests that are occurring on American streets every day. You know, there, there's a lot of interaction between police and citizens. Uh, some of it is violent. There, there are going to be further incidences. These incidences don't necessarily represent the deep structure of American society or uh, the status of African-American citizenship or the, the role of the police or whatever, but they're nevertheless taken in the narrative to, to play that kind of a role. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, I, I, I think there's all kinds of factors that went into that, right? Um, obviously, the rise of social media and, and smartphones with a video camera that just make these cases very, very present um, and which are able to chronicle shocking uh, encounters uh, like, like the one that uh, uh, set off the storm. I think part of it was the disappointment uh, with the exaggerated hopes that were placed in Obama and the Obama presidency, right? There was this moment of naive belief in a post-racial society in at least parts of a commentariat in, you know, late 2008 and early 2009. And so then the recognition that we have a black president that somehow miraculously all the problems have not gone away, I think radicalized big parts of the left. Um, I think there's a genuine way in which the ideas I've been talking about have been packaged and then popularized in a pretty compelling form. I think to understand why they are a powerful trap, you also have to understand what's alluring about them. And part of the thing that's alluring about them is a catastrophism about the nature of contemporary America, coupled with a promise that we have the most radical, uh, uncompromising, extreme way to overcome all of those injustices. And you can be a member of this world historical movement by joining our ranks and uh, accepting this sort of narrative uncritically. Um, there was a slow takeover of a lot of mainstream institutions, such that especially after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, um, criticism of uh, wrong-headed progressive ideas became tantamount to treason. Um, one of the real sort of aha moments I had in researching this book was coming across a literature in social psychology, which shows both the important role that in-group critics play in uh, keeping groups sane and the way in which they're often listened to with respect, unless there's a condition of threat from the outside, unless people feel like my group is under threat from the outside. And then in-group critics are treated way worse than out-group critics. And they're not listened to, they are vilified. And that had started to happen since 20, 
16 in a very powerful way. There's this great anthropological paper with a lovely title, How Come the Enemy of Humanity Always Lives in the Office Down the Hall? And part of that <laughs> is that it's displaced energy. If you want to get rid of Trump, but you can't, well, what he can do is to get rid of a damn person in the office down the, down the hall. And then I think the pandemic created a particular situation as well, where people were alienated and lonely and fearful. Uh, and then suddenly here was the thing that was socially sanctioned to do. What you know, you weren't allowed to go see your friends to have dinner or play video games, but you were allowed to um, take part in uh, this great social movement that promised to make the world a better place. And why not go join it? What else did you have to do, right? Okay, you're a political scientist, and it strikes me that both parties are guilty here of identitarian mobilization, white resentment fueling a lot of the support for Trump, black pessimism fueling a lot of the support for uh, the Democrats. Uh, I was struck during the campaign of 2020 when Jacob Blake, uh, this is the fellow who got shot in the back, not fatally, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as he was apparently running away with his girlfriend's vehicle and wielding a knife, et cetera. I won't go into the details. But in any case, he's in the hospital lying there with bullet wounds. And he gets a telephone call from the vice president of the United States and the uh, candidate, the Democratic Party candidate, Kamala Harris, and from the presidential candidate, Joseph Biden. Uh, this fellow is not exactly an admirable citizen and the deeds that precipitated his injury were not exactly defensible deeds. And nevertheless, he's put forward as some kind of victim of uh, structural forces that the Democrats will protect the blacks from. Likewise, uh, Trump is not particularly subtle in his appeal to uh, white resentment and so on. Uh, so, you know, sounds like uh, we're deep into this uh, identitarian trap that you're decrying and that there's reason on both sides of the aisle for political actors to continue to fuel it. Do you agree? Yeah, you know, there's one of the things that is really hard to talk about is political progress. Um, you know, and this is something that people like Steven Pinker have 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 grappled with. But um, when you're saying things have gotten a little bit better, it sounds like it's a reason to not care, right? Sounds like what? I'm sorry. It sounds like a reason to not care. It sounds like what he's saying is, "Well, things are getting better, so why should we care about this problem?" And that's not oh. what it is, right? If you um, want to figure out how to make a situation better, you have to see whether you're making progress or not. Because if you're making progress, then perhaps you should double down on the things you've been doing. If you're not making progress, then you should change tack. And that, in essence, is what's at the core of this debate. People like Bell think America is as racist today as it was 100 years ago. And so, of course, they think it's time to do something radically different and rip everything up. If you think, I think rightly, that there's many problems in America today, but the country is a lot uh, uh, more just than it was 100 years ago, then you think, well, let's double down on the things that have allowed us to make this kind of progress. Um, and, and, and so I think there are these epistemic bubbles now in, in many parts of the left, many parts of the mainstream, where you know, there is really compelling evidence of particular injustices. And to stand up in the context of that and say, yes, this is a terrible injustice, we have to fight against it. But, you know, let's keep in mind that on the whole, things have gotten better. 
um, is, is a really hard argument to make. And it's a particular hard argument to make in the context of police violence. I have no doubt in my mind that police violence against African-Americans was way worse in 1960 than it was in 1980, and way worse in 1980 than it was in 2000, and way worse in 2000 than it was in 2020. But you didn't have that evidence in those decades because you didn't have ubiquitous cell phones, right? Rodney King, it was a kind of coincidence that it was caught on yeah. camera, right? But, but I'm sure Rodney King was not an exception at the time, right? It wasn't the only thing that happened. So uh, we're very firmly wired to uh, feel that it's gotten worse because we have so much more evidence of these things today because of social media and uh, smartphone cameras. And so, yeah, I think that's going to be difficult to get out of. Uh, at the same time, I am starting to see a little bit of pushback more broadly against the identity synthesis and even against some of this form of catastrophizing. I mean, you know, in the last few years, there was these quote-unquote Karen videos of white women, many of whom have turned out to be mentally ill, being provoked and put in difficult situations and then having mental breakdowns or, or, or acting out. Um, and then being shamed as, 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 as racists and so on on the internet. And in a few of those cases, we now know the fuller story. Uh, and when people try, you know, three years ago, I think it was possible to just provoke a situation like that and get a lot of, a lot of likes for it and very little pushback on social media. I've seen a few attempts that are similar recently and people were much quicker to say, well, what's the full context here? Do we actually know what happened before this 30 second clip or after this 30 second clip? Um, you know, is this just an attempt to rile people up or was there a genuine injustice here? We just want to actually, you know, let's wait until we see a little bit more video, right? Um, and there, I think there has been a subtle shift, not one that makes me unconcerned about the things you're concerned about, but that makes me a little bit less concerned than I was three years ago. Uh, have you followed at all the um, developments at Boston University around uh, Kindy's uh, Center for Anti-Racist Research? And if so, what do you make of that? Well, so first of all, I mean, I've mentioned D'Angelo and, and, and Kendi twice. Let me talk a little bit about the intellectual role they've played in both popularizing the identity synthesis and then making it uh, a, a self-sustaining belief system that, that, that you can't criticize. Um, so, so D'Angelo says, um, if I run a diversity training and people hate the diversity training, it's not because possibly I'm not a great diversity trainer. Um, it is because they have white fragility and they are just using the white privilege and the weaponizing the white tears and so on in order to not have to think about this, right? So there is no acceptable frame, no acceptable standpoint for a participant in her diversity training to push back, to criticize the ideas she's saying to, 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 to say perhaps a little bit more complicated. And her ideas are very radical, right? I mean, in the training that she did for LinkedIn, which was assigned to a breeze at Coca-Cola company and other places, she is advising people on ways to be less white. And some of the ways to be less white are just straightforwardly racist. They're not reverse racist, but straightforwardly racist in saying that parts of white culture are things like loving the written word or liking to be punctual. So I guess, Glenn, you know, you're, 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 you're a white supremacist, according to these ideas. Um, uh, uh, so that's one key point here. And when, when Kendi was very influential, because he uh, explicitly defended a Manichaean worldview, in which, first of all, 
there are only racists and anti-racists. There's no such thing as being not racist. And that's true of people. It's true for policies and other things, right? Um, uh, you know, a, a nonprofit getting together people to play Bach is, can't be non-racist. It has to be either racist or anti-racist, depending on the kind of impact it has on society. And, and, and the only way that you measure whether something is racist or is anti-racist is what kind of impact it has in society, whether it closes uh, disparities or, or, yeah. or doesn't close disparities. And so therefore, any aspect of the United States Constitution that Kennedy believes um, is uh, upholding those disparities is itself racist. And so you take these two things together and you really have a hermetically sealed intellectual space where any critique of the ideology brands you as a fragile person who's just trying to perpetuate racism. Now, these ideas were never sophisticated. And people know it. I know of many people who platformed Ibram Kendi in all kinds of ways who knew that these ideas were less than sophisticated. But he, for whatever circumstance of, uh, you know, combination of circumstances, became the appointed patron saint of that political moment. And people pretended that uh, he had great insights to share, even if secretly they thought that he didn't. Um, uh, and what happened now is that he clearly was such an inept manager of yeah. uh, the center at BU, which had tens of millions of dollars in donations, um, that it didn't produce a single piece of research, uh, so far as I can tell on the website. It had a few snippets from Candy's books, which it features as its research. Um, uh, it somehow managed, despite not doing very much, to alienate all of its employees who claimed they were being overworked for no visible result. Um, and there's been a huge meltdown. Um, Candy remains in charge of the center. He uh, retains all of his public positions. But that, that, that fall from grace, I think, indicates some of the ways in which the most extreme manifestation of this ideology and its hold over public discourse have now been challenged. You're saying the people at the MacArthur Foundation who anointed him with a genius award knew that they were anointing an empty suit? The, the people at the National Book Award who uh, honored the uh, stamp from the beginning uh, as as an award winner, were aware of the fact of the vacuousness of this general line of of intellectual development. Really, I, I think there's a mix. I think that there's true believers, and I think there's a lot of people who didn't feel uh, able to to speak up against the true believers. <sighs> okay, um, so we're, we're getting kind of toward the end here. I want to ask you about your defense of universalism. Do you, do you want to sketch that out a little bit? Because you closed the book with a, I think, very passionate and compelling case for uh, moving beyond the identity trap. I'd like my audience to hear that. So, so a little bit we've talked about it, right? Uh, uh, I think the responses to the core tenets of the identity synthesis are a form of universalism that takes seriously the existence of, 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 of racism, but doesn't say that it's not race abolitionist, um, but that creates a vision of a world in which how we end up treating each other comes to be less rather than more dependent on the kind of identity group of which we are part, in part because we've been able to remedy the ways in which it now structures our reality. 
Um, but I think the broadest case here is about how to build political solidarity and how to encourage a healthy uh, formation of personal identity. So again, you know, the book is called The Identity Trap. Part of the trap is that there's a lure that can reel in smart and well-intentioned people that is ultimately counterproductive. One of the ways in which this is politically counterproductive is that we know, according to lots of political science research, that race-sensitive public policies are very unpopular. But it's very hard for obvious reasons to sustain a lot of support for policies that explicitly say you get this if you're part of this uh, uh, gender or this race or this whatever. Um, uh, there can be universal welfare policies that help to overcome historical injustice and are much easier to pass. Um, we need better legislation to uh, protect American kids from poverty. Uh, that help should go to all American kids who are in poverty on moral grounds because the white kids deserve not to be in poverty as much as the non-white kids. Of course. Um, as importantly, it's much more likely that we're going to be able to pass that kind of legislation if this is a full, pros, full court press among all ethnic groups rather than something that's framed as specifically helping one group. And finally, it would help to lower racial disparities. Because if at the moment uh, African-Americans are disproportionately likely to have children who are in poverty, then a universal welfare state policy that helps all poor American kids is disproportionately going to help African-Americans. Sure. So universal policies can actually help to overcome those forms of racial Injustice, And so I think that's much more likely to build solidaristic politics. How are we going to build solidarity in our politics? By telling people, we haven't talked that much about this in the book, but I don't understand somebody, you know, I don't understand you because you stand at a different intersection of identities and so I just have to defer to whatever you say. Or by saying, no, I can listen to my fellow citizens. I can hear what concerns they have. I might not be able to fully uh, feel what it's like as a woman to fear going on the subway because of sexual harassment. But I can understand it's unjust that my female friends have that fear. I can commit to living in a society where we don't have to have that fear and think about together and listening to them about what policies we need in order to get there. That's not deferring to them. That's actually building a substantive solidarity that we share. The last thing I'll say is personal. Um, you know, I think we all want some form of social recognition some form of social standing. And there's nothing wrong with that. And of course, we can only have that if we have genuine respect for all groups. If you're marked out as a social inferior on the basis of group into which you're born, that is wrong. And in America, people's identities will always in part depend on the kind of cultures from which they originate and to some extent from the kind of ethnic group or race of which they're a part. That's why I don't think we will ever have or should aim for the dissolution of a category of Black Americans, African Americans, right? But to communicate to kids that the predominant, the primary way in which they should understand themselves is as a function of the intersection of identities at which they stand is setting them up for failure. I have a very similar intersection of identities as my brother does. I want to be recognized as myself with my own tastes and predilections and ideas, right? If I'm seen in society exactly the same as my brother, I will say, hang on a second, that's not actually 
giving me the kind of form of social recognition that I desire. And so for those reasons, I actually think that the identity trap is, is a political one, but it's also a personal one. All right. Uh, my guest has been Yasha Monk. Uh, the book is The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Thanks very much, Yasha. Thank you, Glenn. I really enjoyed this. Me too. Bye now.